host Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trukhauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. On the morning of February 1st, 2021, Myanmar awoke to a shock. The military had deposed the democratically elected party, the National League for Democracy. Leader Aung San Suu Kyi is under arrest, and as citizens have taken to the streets and social media to express their emphatic dissent, police have begun ramping up the force used against protesters. Just yesterday, a woman was shot, and water cannons and rubber bullets have also been deployed. The country has a long and complicated history of protests, coups, and fights for control. To understand this latest development, I'm talking to three Prio researchers who all have experience working in and with Myanmar. Together, they'll give us a multifaceted look at the situation. Today's episode will be a little bit longer than usual, but I hope you'll leave with a better understanding of the country's history and its possible future. First, I'll talk to Marta Nilsson about the history of Myanmar and what led up to this coup. Then we'll hear from Truda Stopnes about artistic expression and interventions and what is happening on the ground now. Finally, Stein Tundeson will explain how the military is using control of the internet and social media to try to limit protesters' movements, while also spreading their own propaganda. Marta Nelson is a senior researcher at PRIO. Her focus is on the ethnicity, religion, nation-building nexus of political and violent conflicts in Southeast Asia, with a particular focus on Myanmar and Thailand. Thanks for joining, Marta. I just wanted to start by asking you, uh, what was your your reaction when you heard the news about the coup, uh, when you first heard it, or how did you hear that news? Well, we've heard the rumors that there would be a coup, but I didn't believe that they would go to that length. I was kind of thinking that now they're just, you know, showing their power. Now they're just trying to state an example, scare people off, but they actually did it. I was surprised. Mm. So what actually led up to this? Um, because I think that the the history of um, the country of Myanmar is very, very complex. And um, even for, for somebody who knows a little bit about it, it's it, it can be kind of confusing. So mm. can you lead us just through a, a short history of what led up to this situation? So the... So the reform process of Myanmar. Myanmar has been uh, under military rule for over half a century. And there's been multiple uh, civil wars for even longer. Uh, And there was a reform process that started um, back in 2003, actually, when the military launched what they call the Discipline Flourishing Democracy Plan. And the plan was to consolidate or even legitimize that uh, military power while at the same time giving up some practical tasks for civilian leaders. And all of this is clearly spelled out and secured in the constitution that the military themselves wrote. But then NLD, the National League for Democracy and Aung San Suu Kyi, when they started contesting in the elections that were set up, they became too powerful. They were in 2015, they were winning by massive landslide. And in November 2020, by another massive landslide, even more seats they secured. And I think the generals, or at least Mayon Lang, the chief general, he's thinking like, we can't have five more years of this because they have struggled cooperating with Aung San Suu Kyi because she's not giving up uh, the power that she's earned. And so it's kind of, 
she got too much power in 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 their eyes um and they did what they feel that they are entitled to, to do even in the constitution to stage a coup so this is actually in the constitution yeah there are some cunning uh, par- paragraphs there where they uh, under certain uh, circumstances uh, if you could claim a national security uh, issue of some sort, uh, the military are entitled to take power. Uh, it was, however, very creatively interpreted this time. But uh, with, but they but they did do sort of, of course, a military can stage a coup whenever they like. They have the power, they have the guns. But they want to do it within the constitution because they're not willing to give up that constitution. That's their baby. Right. And right now with the protests that are that are happening and people rising up against against this coup uh what they're saying is that they actually want that constitution to be removed they they want a new they want a new constitution is that correct well uh i think everyone uh, with a democratic mind in myanmar wants a new constitution but right now it's about restoring the elected um representatives which is uh, nld leaders the president and Aung san suu kyi because they've won the election and they want them back Mm. What is the relationship or what, what or what has been the relationship between Aung San Suu Kyi and the military? Because in the last couple of years, of course, we've we've seen the horrific genocide of the Rohingya in Myanmar. And there's been a lot of of criticism of Aung San Suu Kyi because of her her basically support or, or at least lack of criticism um, of, w- of what's been happening with the military. Could you just quickly take us through what their relationship has been or how that's changed. So she, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi is the daughter of Aung San, which is the liberation um, uh, hero of Myanmar, who sort of led the, the independence uh, struggle against the British. Um, he was also uh, a man of the army. So both of them, both Aung San Suu Kyi and the military are kind of... Um, they want they want to see themselves as the 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 rightfully um, um, descendants of Aung San, but they are sort of the opposite. So the military has, look at themselves as the father of the nation. She looks at herself as the mother of the nation, and they are in in a constant um, conflict. So she's been therefore been under house arrest for for um, fifteen years and, and and more, and now she's in, back in in detention but also probably in in house arrest so there have been um she came into the picture in 1998 sorry in 1988 during the big student movement which was the birth of the uh, the, uh, democracy movement in myanmar and it led up to the massacre in uh, uh, where thousands of students were killed and and those who weren't killed they either fled into the jungle and into exile or they remained uh they were became prisoners so this was the the beginning of the democracy movement, uh, and a friend of mine who was a, a kid then, uh, she said, uh, she's out in the street now, right? When she has a little daughter now, and she said, I I just remember that movement in '88, when the people were marching in the street, and now my daughter is watching the same. So there's a big there's a big resemblance between what was going on in 1988 and what is going on today, um, and. Um, the resemblance is that you know it's the young generation, it's the it's the students, um, and another friend of mine who was born in '88. She was she's out there now. She's fr- furious and she's talking about like 
I, I was mess messaging her, asking her, should we go to a more secure platform, an encrypted platform? And she's like, I'm not afraid of that military dwarf anymore. Uh, and she refers to the military mm -hmm. leader as mean online. His name is mean online and she's calling him mean online. So the, there's a lot of, there's a lot of similarities between these uh, movements uh, that were in 1988 and also in the saffron revolution of 2007, when the monks were walk walking in the street, and people said like, they can't hurt the monks. Right. But they did. Uh, and today uh, you have all these, um, uh, the numbers in the streets are as high in, as in 88, probably even higher. The protest spots are all the same, but now they're all over Myanmar. It's not just in Yangon, it's all over Myanmar. And they're singing the same songs as well. Um, I see many postings on YouTube now uh, of this, like really old revolutionary songs from 1988 that are reposted so the new generation will learn them. And I hear them singing on the street. So there are resemblances, but there's also oh, big differences. And the differences is that Myanmar is not the same as 1988 because there has been, although the political reforms that I talked about have been marginal and they're very limited, but the democratization of the society has been enormous. For 10 years, there has been freedom. Uh, and Myanmar was a really repressive um, military dictatorship for, as I said, over, uh, half a century. And the 1988 repression of students and the 2007 uh, Saffron Revolution are manifestations of that. And but the young generations, they don't remember that repressive past now. They they born they've grown up with with freedom and the ability to speak their own mind. And this is of course dangerous because they're quite reckless now. But but it speaks volumes also. And, and we also have to remember that even the grandsons and granddaughters of the generals, uh, they're the same also. They also ha had the enjoyment of 10 years of freedom and they've benefited from that freedom directly. So in that sense, it's different also. And, and, um, and we, talked, we can talk about uh, uh, that they're more digital, they're more global. Another friend of mine who was studying in, in the US in the 90s, um, and she said she was shocked coming to the U.S. because she knew nothing about the world. There was a first meeting with the world. And she could also, the most impressive thing that she could read about her own country and learn about her own country. And she speaks about this moment at seeing the light. So there's been an enormous mm. transformation of people uh, and mindsets in Myanmar. And so even if we now have gone back sort of to 2009 before the reforms, it, Myanmar will not be the same. M Myanmar cannot go back to that situation because of the people have changed as well. And they've, and they've seen what they, they can do, their abilities, and they know what they want. And they communicate with the world in a different way as well. And you see that the protests in Hong Kong and Thailand, there's a lot of links both in how they uh, organize and how they, uh, you know, this kind of plainness of the, of uh, of social movements uh, protesting, and and it's quite amazing to to watch actually. It is, and I'm wondering, you've alluded to it a little bit, but how do people view the military and the situation? Because Again, you alluded to it, for example, with your young friend, and I've seen some posts and some some pictures that seem to illustrate that people aren't just 
they're not just angry, they're actually sort of indignant, indignant. They're sort of disbelieving that this is even happening in the sense that they're almost mocking the military. And I think that's, it's a great attitude to have, but how do people view the military? Because they, they, they're being very defiant and it's, it's very admirable. Mm. What do they feel about this situation? This whole situation is existentialistic. Uh, it's about, they feel like the generals are stealing their future. And I, and that's a serious thing. So even if there's all these playfulness in the street, this is deadly serious. And the situation is also critical because we're in a situation like, even though you see sort of like, festival uh, sometimes on the street you know the the, the police has shot a, a young uh, woman already and we don't know the, the probably the the probably there will be a, some kind of crackdown eventually and and that we know from his experience that that is not going to be pretty so so it's the protesters they're determined and they're not giving in but we also know that the military the Myanmar military are not known to back off either but what is another difference between earlier protests in 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 1988 and uh, other times like you this week we've seen police uh surrendering and going over to the protesters first like one or two and but on wednesday mm -hmm. in loiko in uh, in shan state there was a whole big group of police who were raising the three finger salute symbolizing that they're part of of the the demonstrations and and of course they will get um hmm. they will get i'm sure their their superiors will, will get to them and, and and some of them have already be, been arrested but it's kind of the symbolism of that is is amazing but but i'm very worried about myanmar right now because there are big concerns that there's going to be a violent crackdown on this so just in closing is there anything that you think people should know that they don't know uh people people outside Myanmar people listening to this that they should know or or how how do you think um we should frame this in the media maybe differently um that than it's being reported on no I think the 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 very clear um there's been even a statement from the from the UN um, Security Council and that's different everyone knows it's difficult to get something through there because of the power play between the big nations but there's actually been been quite a clear message from the Security Council also and and uh, but I think unfortunately the the generals they don't care too much about the international community they they care, but they do care about the people in the street so that they they really do want to be acknowledged as the fathers of the nation that they believe they are, and of course this uh, this is embarrassing for them. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's hard to say how this is going to go. But I think the the people in Myanmar need to keep this fight, and uh, they need all the support they can get. Welcome, Truda. Thank you for joining me on this podcast, uh, where we're going to be talking about the coup in Myanmar. And you've done a lot of research uh, about Myanmar in Myanmar, and specifically about political protest. Uh, right now, you're a doctoral researcher on Inspire, which is inspirational creative practice, the work of artists in times of war and conflict. And that's a larger project at Prio. And your master's thesis, also at Prio, was part of the project Societal Transformation in Conflict Contexts Transform. So you have kind of a, a history with the country, and I know that you have a lot of personal connections. 
So I just wanted to start by asking you, what was your reaction to to the news of the coup? Yeah, thank you, Indigo, for having me in this podcast. I was happy to be invited to share a bit about what I've been observing since the coup. Um, but yeah, my initial uh, reaction, I actually woke up uh, just immediately looked at my phone because I was trying to wake slowly up in my bed. And I think I immediately went into the Norwegian newspaper and it was the first thing that met me. It was like, there's a coup in in Myanmar. Uh, so I was a bit shocked, even though I've, like before the coup, we've, we heard these rumors about uh, that something might happen, but that weekend before the coup, it was uh, kind of pulled back that the military said that, no, the media has misunderstood and that's not going to happen. Um, so, yeah, I was shocked and, and sad and just started to uh, look at everything that was going on because we're, we're hours behind Myanmar. So a lot of things had happened that night when I was asleep. Um, and yeah, and just checking in with people that I that I know there, and and also keeping track of what was happening. Yeah, yeah, and it's been in the news, of course, a lot, and we've seen so many terrifying videos and and photos of really brave protesters who are now being met with increasing violence. But your research has focused more on perhaps movements that are not seen as often in in the media but are really important which are usually led by artists so i was hoping you could tell us a little bit about maybe some of the the initiatives or the interventions that you've seen uh, that maybe aren't being as highlighted as much yeah yeah i i've been following like everything that's been happening now really closely and of course these uh, past few days we've seen or since the weekend, there have been huge protests in the streets of, of Myanmar, mostly peaceful protests, but also, yeah, we're recording this Wednesday, 10th of February. So yesterday it started getting more intense and uh, and more violent uh, in the streets. Um, but yeah, so it's become more intense these last days. But what I actually wanted to like focus on, as you were saying, is the opposition that we've seen not only out on the streets these last few uh, days, but also what was happening like immediately after the coup. Um, there's been so much going on. It seemed like people weren't doing much the first few days, but it was actually so much happening on social media and so much happening uh, with peaceful protests in the evening and also with people striking. Um, so... What I thought I would say something about is like um, the civil disobedience movement that uh, is going on there now. And like the day after the, the coup, the, someone put up a civil disobedience Facebook page. Uh, and it was, yeah, it was created the day after the coup and they got a lot of followers really, really quickly. Um, and it was there that like medical staff started to say that they would uh, have like a labor strike. Many medical workers were saying, we're not going to work as a civil disobedience, it's um, part of the civil disobedience movement. And they were later joined 
by other workers, like school teachers and civil servants at government departments and other workers. They have quit going to their job uh, as a protest. And I know that this isn't uh, this isn't art, but I also want to talk about these activists, uh, these activists and like workers who are going against the coup in not only by protesting on the street, but also through other means. Um, so yeah, this, this was kind of the first thing that happened and in support of these labor strikes. Um, this clapping campaign started on social media. So every day at five o'clock, people were clapping for the labor strikers. Um, so people are sharing on social media a lot of videos of clapping uh, every day. And also so many people are updating their Facebook statuses uh, to support this civil disobedience done by the medical workers and teachers. Um, yeah. And different campaigns kind of started to spread around on social media, especially Facebook, and also a lot of protest art. Like from the very first day uh, of the coup, people started spreading this protest art. Um, and what, like one of the one of the images uh, that we've seen, or the signs that we've seen a lot, if you've seen like pictures from the protests in the streets, you've seen this three finger uh, salute that people are, yeah, they're putting three fingers up in the air. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, people are doing it in on the street now. And it actually comes from this Hunger Games movies. I don't know if you've seen it. Yes. Yeah, I have. I mean, I was a big fan of, of the books and the movies and that, and that's been used in other protests before exactly, I think, as well, exactly. which is, really interesting that it's uh in a way such a universal or it's become such a universal symbol and yeah i've seen some very evocative photos of people doing that now in myanmar yeah exactly and they did it in thailand as well uh earlier so it's become especially i've seen it in like asian countries that this is a sign um so this became this has been huge in the protests but also like the day after the coup it was huge on facebook so people were sharing a lot of pictures of themselves doing this sign, but also a lot of artwork uh, where people are have illustrated um, this specific sign. So, like uh, from the there was this one illustration uh, that was shared in the very beginning uh, of these three fingers, and then it has kind of grown throughout these past one and a half weeks. That other artists and illustrators are kind of adding to the same artwork. So first, the first time I saw it, it was one hand with three fingers in the air. And then the next time I saw it, another artist had kind of added his illustration with another style to that artwork. And, and then a third, fourth, fifth, so many artists have collaborated on this huge artwork now um, with like a lot of these three finger uh um, three-fingered salutes next to each other and this artwork has also been like taken out onto the streets now people are using it and of course sharing it on social media and also mm. like one of the first days after the coup I uh, there was a live streamed event uh, of artists um, live illustrating 
there when they were drawing this artwork with three fingers uh, salutes, which has also been spread really widely. But it's, it's really like uh, interesting to see how this spread so quickly on social media. Yeah. Mm. Do you think that art is even more important in this context as a part of the protest because at times social media and the internet has been taken down in the last couple of weeks? Is Are people using art in the streets or, uh, for example, graffiti or, or anything like that? Have you seen anything, any patterns there? Yeah, I've seen a lot of uh, graffiti and I've seen a lot of uh, events where people are... Like today, I saw someone uh, having like an event where artists uh, came together to create uh, protest art uh, that they are now selling, so you can buy it to support uh, the the movement. Yes, I think it's been uh, really important and really like from the beginning, like before they took to the streets, it was really so much artwork on social media. And just to build like kind of a momentum or to spread the word, uh, I think it was really effective with all of these protests, um, protest art that we saw. And, and there, there have also been another thing that I wanted to to touch upon is the another campaign that started also like the the day after the coup was the. Um, banging of pots and pans i don't know if mm. you've seen that um but i've seen some great photos of um women old ladies in their homes banging pots and pans at the tv which i absolutely loved yeah and i was at the tv against uh, the yes minong lang yeah against the dictator yeah i've seen that as well but that actually also happened like from the day after the coup everyone did this and my yeah, social media was filled with videos of uh, people, like streets were just like so much sounds of people banging their kitchen uh, pots and pans together and also joined by um, people honking their horns. And it was a lot the day after the coup and it just like got louder and louder for each day like it's eight o'clock in the night, uh, young Myanmar time, I, I just knew that internet was going to be like f- flooded with these videos. Uh, and that's also like, it was really, really powerful. Even though people weren't protesting on the streets yet, it was still like a huge, uh, huge movement all, already. Um, and as part mm. of that, um uh, as part of the pots and pans banging, they were also, we've seen a lot of uh, revolutionary songs as part of the movement, both people singing singing during these evenings, the winds, evening events, but also on the streets now, the last few days. Um, so especially this uh, one song that is a student revolutionary song from the 1988 pro-democracy movement i've heard so much uh, the last week and it's been a song that we've been like singing at home here now because i've heard it so many times um but the title means something like we should not surrender until the end of the world um 
and yeah it's been played so much and then yesterday i actually saw that the the composer who has made kind of the lyrics to this this song way back in the 1888 uh, protests he actually made uh, some new lyrics for a song so yesterday he they brought this lyrics for this new song to the protests in in Yangon and they spread the lyrics and they played the song and I heard that the name for the song is Revolution I haven't heard it yet but but yeah so there's a lot of uh, art protest art and revolutionary songs uh, spreading around right now Mm. so for my last question I just wanted to I won't ask you to kind of look into the future and, and imagine what will happen because I think nobody really knows yet but I was just wondering if you could reflect a little bit also based on your your master's thesis work, because that uh, thesis that you wrote it was called The Protest Was Our Last and Only Weapon, which is a quote, a qualitative study of how individuals in Myanmar understand their motives for participating in protest. So I'm just curious, based on that work, and I know you did a lot of field work for that and in interviews, um, how do you think that has those experiences of protest before have affected how people have responded now because I know at least that I've been really in awe and amazed at just how many people are on the streets and how defiant they are and even in the face of obviously what is a very dangerous situation so how do you think the the long history of protests in the country has maybe galvanized people now yeah yeah, of course. People, many people have a history of uh, protesting in the streets before, and in my master thesis, I looked specifically at at like this um, protest in two thousand and fifteen against a new education law. So I talked with many activists uh, about why they were protesting against this education law, and why they were because they had this. Uh, march throughout the country for months where they were working each day to oppose this uh, law and um, they were talking about education is really important for our country and they were marching for education but actually also for democracy in Myanmar so what I think I want to say is that like I know these protests now are against the military coup and like they want they want to follow the elections that was in November but a lot of younger activists that I spoke with then and who are also really active now it's not only that they want to see uh, that they want to follow the elections but they kind of want a completely different system they want they don't want the 2008 constitution that where the military already has a lot of power before this military coup, you know, and they want like a federal democracy, like a real democracy. They don't think that even though the country has opened a lot the last few years, they they don't think it's uh, actually a democracy yet and they want something better. So many of the people who are out on the streets have kind of, uh, larger goals and and um, this protest against the education law that I was specifically looking at uh, for my master thesis has a lot to do with what they're also fighting for 
now. Um, yeah, if that was a, an answer to your question. And yeah, I don't really want to look into the future to to um, to try to predict what is going to, going to happen. But I also wanted to to mention that uh, if anyone would like to support people in Myanmar now, either artists or activists or or also support like local journalists who are working on the ground and doing really great work. I've been live streaming so many protests the last few days following it on um, on Facebook. Uh, I have like several suggestions for how to support so then people can contact me if, if, um, if they want to. Thank you, Truda. And we can also put some links in the description as well. Yeah, that's great. Well, to finish us off, we will play a clip from the protest song or anthem, I guess it's become, that you mentioned. Um, thank you so much for talking with me, Frida. Thank you for having me. Truda Stopness is a doctoral researcher at PRIO. She previously did fieldwork in Myanmar for her master's thesis about student protests, and is now writing her PhD as part of the larger project Inspirational Creative Practice, the Work of Artists After War and Violent Conflict, where she's also focusing on Myanmar. He's just completed a project looking at social media in Myanmar and has focused on the region throughout his career. Welcome, Stein. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about Myanmar today and the coup. I just wanted to ask you, first of all, what were your initial reactions uh, when everything started last week? And just to orient the audience, we're recording on Tuesday, uh, February 9th. I will, it was a shock for me. I was unprepared. I should have seen the signs, but I didn't see them. So I was woken up by a journalist calling from the Norwegian uh, radio and then had one hour to try to assemble myself, get pull myself together and say something about this tragic development. You say that you should have seen the signs. What do you mean by that? On the 26th of January, the um, commander-in-chief came with a, a threat that something would happen. And I had followed the complaints that the military were making uh, after the November 8 elections, uh, where they claimed that I was fraud, but I did not take it seriously. I did not imagine that the army would do what it did on the 1st of February. Mm. And you have quite a 
close relationship with the country. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Um, I mean, of course, you you research Myanmar, but I know that you've been there many times, and and I think it is a very special place for you. So maybe you just want to talk a little bit about your your own background. Yes, I have a long history with the region. I have been working on Southeast Asia, first Vietnam and later other countries in Southeast Asia. I remember very well 1988 and the massacre in Yangon at that time. I took part in uh, conferences that were held in Oslo with a lot of Myanmar experts when Aung San Suu Kyi uh, got uh, or did not get because she couldn't come to Oslo the Nobel Peace Prize in 1991. And I remember vividly 2007 when, after two days of threats, the military cracked down on the monks' protests in the Saffron Revolution. And since 2012, I've spent much of my time in Myanmar building friendships in many parts of the country. And now my friends are engaged in a kind of so far peaceful revolt using lots of fantasy and imagination in the choice of methods to fight the coup. So I try to follow this all the time on the web to the extent that the internet is open so that we can see what's happening. Mm. So that brings me to the main topic that I want to discuss with you, which is social media and specifically Facebook uh, in, in this context. And you have a project that uh, is called Social Media in Armed Conflict, the case of Myanmar, um, which is very interesting because, as you point out, Myanmar went from a country with where most people didn't have phones to a country where people had access to, to very cheap smartphones and a lot of people started using social media. So what has been the role of, of social media so far in this situation? Um, so far, the role of social media has all, almost been the role of Facebook, because Facebook has had some 95 to 100% of the social media traffic. This mm. is a special thing for uh, Myanmar. And it's also special that the, the traditional media, to a great extent, depend on Facebook for uh, marketing their news and stories. Because Facebook established itself in Myanmar at a time when very few people had access to the internet at all. It was extremely expensive when I first came there in uh, 2012 just to hire a SIM card. Mm. But then the country went through what I would call a digital revolution from 2014 after the government of General Thein Sein, who became president in 2011, decided to uh, go out and have bids for concessions to run telecom operations. This was a pretty clean process where there were two winners, Telenor from Norway and uh, Oredo from Qatar. So they got to compete then with the Myanmar Post and Telecom, which had been monopoly, had a monopoly until then. And also later, something called Mitel, which is a telecom provider uh, that is made up in cooperation between companies owned by Myanmar's military and the military in Vietnam. Uh, so four competitors, and they built out uh, fiber and towers all over the country. So in just two to three years, uh, access to smartphones and internet came to a whole population of 53 to 54 million people 
who had not that before that, as you said, had access to any kind of telephone. And with Facebook in it, Facebook became the gateway, the portal to the internet par excellence. And so um, we're going to get to Telenor, which I think is also really interesting. But Facebook then last week was shut down. And I just would love to hear a little bit about that process, because where do you draw the line as a, as a private company in terms of, of how you intervene or what you say? What, what was kind of the uh, response from Facebook to this entire situation and, and from the military? Uh, what happened? Yes, there have been um, two, two kinds, you may say, of shutdowns. One kind of shutdown has been the shutdown of the whole Internet. The government orders the telecom providers, the four telecom providers, to cut all access to the Internet. That means phones remain open. You can send SMS messages, but you cannot have access to the Internet. And the companies, have uh, they have done this when asked to do it. Because in their concession terms, the government has a clause saying that it can order uh, the companies to shut down the Internet when that is required for national security. Hmm. Uh, the companies have then done it promptly when they have asked to do it. But Telenor has distinguished itself a little bit from the other three providers by each time going public with it. Okay. And also expressing in on the 1st of February when the internet was closed down during the coup. Uh, Telenor did it, but it expressed grave concerns for this as a break, breach of human rights. So, and they send out press, press bulletins uh, about it when it happens. The other companies have done it more, uh, just done it without talking about it. Then the other shutdown is a shutdown of specific social media. And this has then uh, been the case for Facebook, but also for other media like Twitter and uh, Reddit, Viber, uh, have also been hit by temporary bans. And then the government orders the telecom providers to shut down that particular service. And it's particularly serious with Facebook because Facebook is so essential to communication in the country. Facebook is mm. sitting on more data about Myanmar than any institution in the, in the country itself. But no one in Myanmar can control Facebook content because it's on servers abroad. And the office of Facebook that runs the operation in Myanmar is based in Singapore. But we have seen uh, leaks there, there are so many leaks in this situation, leaks of public documents. When the military government in, sends out instructions, someone leaks them and they are put up on the web. And the same happened to Facebook, where an instruction to the staff from the uh, leader of the office in Singapore was leaked. And that leak showed that Facebook wanted to, first, it was gravely concerned when it was, had, was subjected to temporary setbacks. It wanted to get back, which is has got in periods. And it then wanted to protect criticism of the new junta. And it wanted to remove stuff that incited people to violence. And that was seen as, as in a way, taking the sides of the people against the new illegitimate government by many of those who saw that leak. 
Uh, Facebook has been more careful in its public statements, but it has expressed also, like Telenor, its grave concerns. Okay, because that was my other question um, about public statements. Um, has Telenor made any specific statements? Yes, there are uh, press uh, statements that uh, have been made each time they are asked to uh, shut down. And this is also something they have done in the past, because this is not the first time that the government shuts down internet in Myanmar. They have done it for a very long time, since June 2019, in one of Myanmar states, that's Rakhine state, where the Arakan army has been running a very active insurgency for the last two years, uh, which only uh, led into a ceasefire right after the elections last year. And I know that there have been protests in Oslo uh, this past weekend. Um, maybe, do you know anything about kind of the response from um, either people like you who have some connection to the country or, or maybe people who have immigrated? Uh, is there any sort of anger at Telenor? Do people feel that Telenor is complicit or are these statements enough? Are they, are they somewhat political or are they more just a statement that this is what's happening and, and that's why we're shutting down uh, the internet? I'm not, not absolutely sure what I think uh, Telenor should have done in addition to going public with what it, when, it, when it's ordered to close down. It is bound by concessions and of course it runs the risk of being thrown out of the country if it doesn't fulfill the terms in the concession. But it's, it's, the, the, the question I ask myself is when the instructions come from a military government established in a coup. That's not a legal government. Mm. So uh, to follow instructions from an illegal government is different from what it has done in the past when the order to shut down the internet in Rakhine state came from a more or less legitimate government where Aung San Suu Kyi was a state councillor. So um, I think it's that this is this is doubtful but of course if Telenor in Myanmar which has, has a big office and many employees in the country itself if it had just ignored instructions from the government that would probably seal its fate in the country mm. what are people doing instead of or how are they communicating instead of Facebook for example when that was shut down or or um, because I mean, people are clearly still gathering and, and protesting in the entire over, across the entire country. Yes, the internet has been on and off, and this is has several reasons, I suppose. One is that the banks need the internet, so <laughs> if you close down the internet, you also close down the country's economy in way in a way. So, and the other is that the military also, to some extent, depends on uh, Facebook working. There have been very paradoxical situations where the military has uh, first shut, ordered the shutdown of Facebook and then they have put up an instruction afterwards on Facebook from themselves to the people to not demonstrate. <laughs> <laughs> and then there are many people who've learned to use VPN so that they can have access to Facebook even uh, when it's closed mm. uh, through servers abroad. Uh, and uh, many have also started learning how to use all kinds of other social media like TikTok and Reddit and they have turned to Viber 
so then the military has responded by closing down these services as well. Uh, but there is a lot of imagination out there among the demonstrators uh, and among people at large. So I think this is a very, very quick learning period for people in finding ways around uh, the government. The, the other reason why the military temporarily opens up the internet again, I think, is for intelligence purposes. Because if they shut down the internet and then they open it, then some, then they can be ready to monitor everything that happens so they can know who they should arrest. And this is, of course, uh, a fear among those who, who think about it. But I suppose most demonstrators do not really think about that in Myanmar. This is something that has become a kind of habit to think about in countries like Syria where there has been such a harsh conflict for a long time. But in Myanmar, this is this is a new consideration. Hmm. Well, thank you so much, Stein. We're out of time now, but I really appreciate uh, all of your all of your points and all of your thoughts. And I'm hoping that we can have a follow up, um, hopefully a positive follow up. But we'll see what develops in Myanmar. This is on Tuesday. I just want to express my hope that there can be peace in Myanmar, that there will not be a clampdown and that the digital revolution can continue. Thank you. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trigauker. Music by Martin Redemont.